Someone asked me recently, what is the coolest part of my job as CEO at Clear Motor Market? I said, well, that's easy. The fact that every day I get to dig into our clients' businesses to learn not only what makes it tick, but what we can do as their partner to deliver the marketing that truly matters to their business. It's like being in a living, breathing case study every day. And for that, I am truly blessed. Hello, Collisions YYC listeners. It's with an overwhelming sense of pride that I wanted to share with you that the marketing agency that I had the pleasure of co-founding and leading is turning 15 years old. Yes, their motive marketing is 15. I wanted to shout out a huge thank you to all of our clients, past and present, as well as our vendors and all of the incredible team members we've worked with over the years to make this milestone possible. Check us out at clearmotive.ca to learn more about what we can do that matters to you. Hello and a warm collegiate YYC. Welcome to my guest this morning, Mr. Brent Arnold. How are you doing, Brent? I'm well. How are you? I'm really good, man. Thanks for coming on. We got introduced, I think, through uh, someone at your firm that reached out and said, hey, Tyler, are you ever looking for guests? Here's a variety of topics. And the topic of cybersecurity was one she floated by me. So I leaped at it. And you are currently, uh, you're at Gowling, so you're a litigator and a data breach coach. Coach and counsel, I would counsel, say, yeah. Coach and counsel, data breach counsel, not a coach, not a life coach, as we, as, as we, joked, about, <laughs> as we joked about off air. Um, my joke is, though, keeping your data healthy is probably as important as keeping your health on track, but we won't draw too many of those parallels. So, Brent, <laughs> tell me a little bit. What do you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? And give us a quick little elevator pitch. What gets me out of the bed is a really loud alarm on my phone. Uh, but what I do is I am a litigator by training. So I do uh, typically defending uh, lawsuits in the tech space, uh, often to do with with uh, data breach, we are, for instance, on uh, as as counsel in one of the biggest, I think, the biggest actually data breach class action in the country's history. Uh, I'm also what's called a data breach uh, coach or counsel, meaning that uh, when a client suffers an, an attack, I get brought in as a sort of a first responder to coordinate the response uh, in a way that hopefully minimizes future legal risk, uh, makes sure that we're dealing with all the compliance issues with privacy and so forth, and make sure that we're also um, setting the client up so that they're in as good a position as possible going forward to be resilient, resist future attacks, and also um, sort of minimize the damage caused by an attack. Okay. Um, maybe an obvious question, but are these, on, are these on the rise? They certainly seem to be, but I always want to caution what is just an increase in a reporting cycle that the news is latching onto versus what's actually happening in the real world. <laughs> yeah. And you're right to be um, careful about that because like you'll see often, we'll, we'll see conflicting reports uh, sort of point in time all the time. Uh, most of the big cyber vendors and big consulting companies all put out reports of their own that are drawing in part on, you know, at least in part on their own anecdotal, on anecdotal experience. Experience and that varies. So it's hard to sort of put real numbers on all this, but it definitely seems to be a continuing upward trend. It was an explosion during the pandemic, uh, and it certainly has not backed down. Um, and the severity or the, you know, again, there's always, and I've heard this, like so much goes unreported. So like these yeah. are, that can be silent crimes in terms of companies want to keep it on the down low. Is that also shifting where companies are realizing that this isn't something to be hidden, but actually something you need to deal with, which got your reputations on the line. Like there's a lot of factors. Like when you get that call, like, Hey, I think we just had X. What does the corporate comms team? What is the, uh, the, what, what, what happens next? <laughs> right, right. So there's, there's a few things there to unpack. Uh, in terms of uh, severity, is it getting worse? I would say it is in the sense that we are seeing ever more creative ways of, and we'll talk about the different kinds of attacks, the different kinds of threats, but uh, in particular in the ransomware space, the creativity and the um, uh, the uh, effort that's put into this is is always amazing to me. Uh, so we are seeing all, always new variations on these themes and new kinds of attacks and new ways of, of essentially intimidating and extorting. So that's getting worse. Um, I think we're seeing a bit of a culture change in terms of, and this isn't new, this has been going on for a while now. It used to be that these attacks were things that people were, um, admonished, companies were admonished for, and it was uh, you know, it was very, you know, it was, it was an embarrassing thing to have happen. I think nowadays people are starting to think Think of these things as like like weather almost. I mean, it's not uncommon for us to hear about uh, a big data breach with a publicly traded company, and you'll notice it barely affects their stock, uh, their stock price. So I think that everyone has now been through enough of this that they're starting to be pragmatic about it. They're not sort of a pro reacting emotionally in a way that they would have a few years ago. Um, and I think we are starting to see, and I don't have figures on this because the police quite properly keep this to themselves, but I think we're seeing more um, more of a willingness to report to law enforcement. And that's the thing that's changed a lot, right? Like we, the reports to the privacy commissioners 
most in that that's up moving upward as well. We're seeing more of that they've gone from the dozens to the hundreds in the last few years. Uh, and I think companies are becoming more, and I'm certainly an evangelist for this, more willing to report to law enforcement as well. Cause they realize that, you know, if you are keeping this to yourself, no one is, uh, no one is helped by that. Whereas if everyone is working with law enforcement cooperatively on this, helping them build up their intel, I mean, two things. One, they're actually getting to the point where they're able to arrest people. They're starting to make real progress in actual solving of crimes. And two, the more information they have, the better position they are to do all of these things, including protect us because they work cooperatively with the government, the cybersecurity center and so forth. And the more information that they have to work with, the better off we all are. So the first thing, that I'm going to take out of that is no matter what size of business you are, if you suffer one of these attacks, it is a crime and should be treated as such. Like you're not just calling your insurance or you're calling your IT provider. You should call. And who should you call local RCMP? Like who, who actually polices that? That's it, it. It's changing right now. We're still in the phase where the answer is depends, uh, which is the answer you get every time you get a lawyer on your show. I imagine, but yep. <laughs> uh, so for instance, um, if you're in a place where um, the RCMP or your local police, you call call the RCMP. If you're in a place where you have local police force, what the RCMP prefers is that the intake goes in through your local police force, and then they notify the notify the RCMP. The RCMP's cyber crimes unit is is going to be spinning up a sort of a, I guess a call center functionally, so that you can report crimes to the RCMP. Directly, but they're not there yet. It'll be in the next few months. So often we're dealing with local law enforcement. There are varying degrees of sophistication in that, as you can probably imagine. For instance, Toronto uh, uh, Police Services has a very sophisticated cyber unit. The, the, local, the smaller municipalities, not so much. So it tends to get passed up. Uh, and often I will try to involve the Ontario Provincial Police because they are very sophisticated and, uh, and, and, and they have real reach. And the, the good thing about, this, about it is this. These forces are all working together cooperatively. It's a web. So if you get into the system, whether it's through the OPP or through... Um, uh, in Alberta, the, your equivalent, yep. uh, or, or local law enforcement, it's going to get in. It, it ends up involving the people that need to be involved. And if it's international in scope, they're working very closely with uh, the RCMP. This is they're working very closely with the FBI, with Interpol, uh, with the private sector, uh, working with. Uh, uh, private sector vendors that do things like uh, crypto uh, for, uh, and blockchain forensics so that they can actually trace you know, payments through the blockchain, that sort of a thing. So one way or the other, you're, you're, you're into the system and you're getting the people, you're getting the help that you need. What percentage of these are actually international? Like this isn't somebody breaking into, you know, a friend of mine had somebody cut through the back delivery door last weekend and like very local, very smash and grab kind of scenario. When we're talking cyber, is this automatically by default? almost always on an international scale in terms of the actors that are on the other side of this thing? It absolutely is, because the threat actors are almost never local. We have seen some Canadian ones, and they've, and they've been arrested. Uh, and actually, one thing that's uh, an interesting new trend that, that we're seeing is we're seeing U.S. and U.K. teens working with Russian cyber criminals collaboratively on some of these attacks. That's an interesting new wrinkle. But typically speaking, that's a movie. Dealing- like that's a movie plot right there. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure I've seen that movie. Yeah. <laughs> totally. uh, but uh, yeah, um, I don't know who's going to play me, but we'll figure that out. Um, but but by and large, what you're talking about is people attacking from other countries. Uh, Russia is a huge one in the system in, in, in this space because the Russian government is uh, takes a, 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 a well, they treat it with benign neglect. They're quite happy for them to be attacking and harassing and stealing from people in other countries as long as they leave Russians alone. And that's the way that it's always been. So you're almost always dealing with a threat actor from a different country. You may be dealing with an international aspect, depending on where the company, where the the, the victim organization is located. If it's in more than one jurisdiction, that sort of a thing. You have, sometimes I see scenarios where we have a Canadian parent and then a U.S. subsidiary or the reverse. And so they're tied together because typically they're under the same cybersecurity umbrella. And certainly when we get to the stage of dealing with the privacy implications, because what drives jurisdiction when you're talking about complying with privacy laws is where do the people whose data is impacted live? So I dealt with one recently that... Um, not a huge breach, like let's say less than 30,000 people uh, whose information was affected. We had to report in four jurisdictions in Canada. That's basically all of the ones that have a commercial law covering this. Um, five, eight, eight different American states, because they all have different laws in every American state, uh, to the UK, because thanks to Brexit, they can't. We're, we're, uh, they have a law very similar to GDPR in, in Europe, the European data breach law, but now they're separate jurisdictionally. And we had to report in Europe because there was one person living in Europe affected by this. And most of these jurisdictions, it doesn't matter how many people, if it's one person, you still have those obligations. So that gets international in a hurry. 
So interesting, just that, you know, 30,000, not a big breach, but if I'm an individual, if I'm one of the 30,000, it can be, it can be significantly impactful to me. Like that's the challenge with these crimes, right? Like the scale of using a number to identify it versus the impact to an individual of what, where that, their information could potentially get misused or misappropriated. Well, yeah. And and the theoretical risk to an individual is catastrophic. Absolutely. In practice, this is interesting to me. And I think this is a function of the fact that everyone has been through so many of these kinds of phishing attacks and scams. Like I get a call once a week from my mother saying I should just delete this, right? Yes, you should, mom. <laughs> so we're all sort of getting up to that sort of median level. So what the, the biggest risk from having your data out there um, is it sets you up to be a victim of an identity fraud or a scam. Okay. Um, now, in most cases, we never end up seeing any evidence of that happening, or it's impossible to tell, right? Like, I get several of those calls in a couple over a period of a couple of weeks, and I'll never know if it's because somebody that, you know, a client I work for has been breached, or a vendor company that I've worked with has been breached. I, myself, am a, a member of five different class actions in the States, uh, because I stayed at a Marriott, uh, I uh, went to a museum in New York, um, I had a MasterCard, so I'm like, you know, and I'm an expert in this area. Even I'm part of all this. So, uh, you, you often we never get to a stage where we're saying this person has this sort of a loss that we can connect to this breach. Uh, interesting. Just because of how uh, spread out and how like it, it's not a one-to-one ratio. No, no. And a lot of it depends on what's the information. If they get your banking information, that sort of a thing, that's something they can do something with. Yeah, versus mm-hmm. a name or an old password you used at a, on a site X amount of years ago that then left the back door open. Kind of thing. Yeah, goodness knows. So, like they could get into my MySpace page. Who knows? <laughs> the havoc so they could wreak. We all, know? yes, we all have something in our in our in our digital closet. You, you alerted to earlier the different types and kind of who. Is there a bit of a matrix of kind of what you're seeing? The types of cyber attacks, maybe thinking about it at large enterprise level companies, all the way down to you know maybe small to medium, and then who? You obviously mentioned Russia, like the whole bad actor concept gets thrown around. That that term sure. is used a lot yeah. in this space. So what are you seeing? Like how do you categorize this? Let's give the audience a little bit more. Like let's let's un- let's get into the nuts and bolts a bit. Sure. Let me start with the actors because sometimes the actors are what drive the kind of crime we're talking about, and then I'll walk you through what the threat are that we're talking about so the actors here's the cast of here's the cast on the bad guy side it's the usual cyber criminals the people that are after money right and that's very often russia as we were saying before they'll the, the government's quite happy for them to attack uh, uh people in other countries there's no extradition treaty and now thanks to the war with ukraine they're the minimal cooperation we used to enjoy with the russian police because sometimes they would you know in a casablanca round up the usual styles uh, suspect sort of way they would sometimes cooperate we're not seeing that now obviously uh so you've got hackers from abroad You've got um, this alliance I was telling you about with, uh, well, actually, this is a different one. There's an alliance with some English-speaking hackers, called they call themselves Scattered Spider, and a Russian ransomware group called Alpha V. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that yet. Uh, and those are folks that used to be in Darkseid who brought you the colonial pipeline attack. Uh, you've got those U.S. and U.K. teams working together with Russia. And then you've got the state, then those are just criminals, right? And now you've got the state actors, and this is where you get North Korea. And if you're attacked by North Korea in a hack, you're likely being attacked by the North Korean military. Somebody in the North Korean army uniform in a bunker somewhere is behind the attack. Uh, And then you've got China, same thing. And we've got uh, also attacks coming out of Ukraine and Iran. Now, the motives are different for these different um, countries. North Korea, they are after money to fund the missile program. So it's going to be um, like it's 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 going to be straight up theft, often crypto theft. Uh, it's going to be uh, phishing attacks that uh, result in you doing uh, fraudulent transactions. Uh, that so the money just goes out, and ransomware is not something we think of as as much with with uh, with them. Uh, with China, they're stealing intellectual property. So we're not seeing there. That's not a ransomware attack. That's not an attack trying to get money. That's an attack where they're getting into the system, possibly never being detected, and stealing intellectual property that they can then use because uh, the Chinese government works very closely with the Chinese state, sorry, with, with the Chinese companies to uh, you know strategically build up Chinese industry. Um, the Russians are just interested in causing havoc, and the government's fine with that. Um, <laughs> Chaos. Sna- Chaos theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now you're also seeing you know, some hackers out of Ukraine, uh, again, because like the, 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 the Russia-Ukraine war has gone cyber and was right from the beginning. 
Um, we also had the hacktivists and the vigilantes with varying degrees of ties, formal or not, or, 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 or very little uh, for, formality to the states. So again, Russia's, Russians, since the beginning of the war, attacking Ukraine and attacking Western businesses that were supporting Ukraine. Uh, we're still seeing those, although those never really reached the size and scale that we all expected at the beginning. It's been interesting. Um, why, we've why, got, any, uh, thought, any thoughts on that? I'd love to just to camp out for a second on it. You know, yeah. it's a, it's a, It went cyber right from the beginning or it was before it started. Yeah. Uh, what For the average person, like, what does that mean? It's so easy to go, oh yeah, okay, I get it. But what does that actually entail when you think of cyber warfare on top of a ground campaign? Like there's tradi- very traditional warfare being fought there with this well, whole other layer. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the whole mess, right? And if you try to, if you try to um, look at this from, there, there's a, there are rules for engaging in cyber warfare, the same way as there are rules of regular warfare, kinetic warfare is the call. Um, they G- really G- don't G- fit. G- Geneva Convention style. Yeah, regulatory. absolutely. Interesting. Absolutely. And they really don't capture the picture we have now because it's far more complicated because if you try to sort of like the, these are people that don't fit into categories they're not necessarily state they're not working for the state they're not government they're not military they may not even have uh, being being working they may not even be volunteers working with those uh groups they may just be doing it on their own and then you've got the more complicated scenario of, of uh, anonymous which got involved in the conflict because ukraine put out essentially a, a, a like a, a what we call it an SOS saying and encouraging the hackers of the world to attack Russia. Now, they're probably not coordinating, or we don't know, but they may yeah. never have spoken with each other. But these volunteers have gone off and done exactly that. Anonymous has been very active in this campaign. So where do they fit in? Because they're just people in, in, in people in, in you know their rooms, offices like this all over the planet, possibly not even working together. Although you know, there's some degree of, co- of uh, coordination within Anonymous. They know who they are. We don't know who they are. Um, so, and now we've got in this, uh, in, in this Israel Gaza conflict, um, more of this at the beginning than I think we saw with Russia, Ukraine, this, the, the, the cyber war there is heating up very quickly, but again, hard to even call it a war because for the most part, we don't know if these are formal, formal groups, but we've got Russians and Iranians attacking Israel. Uh, the Jerusalem post website was taken down by hackers. We're seeing claims. And I think these are still unsubstantiated of attacks on an electrical grid, a rocket alert app, which is the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. We've got aid groups in Gaza experiencing, uh, deny, uh, distributed denial of service attacks. And those kinds of attacks also on rescue services, telecommunications, government services, and media. So it's, it's like, <laughs> How do you co- how do you um, how do you police this? Because we don't know who they are. They're not necessarily working with any orders of any government, so they're not sort of falling in within those rules of war. Um, so that's that's the cast of uh, bringing it back to your original question several minutes ago. Because you asked a simple question, you're getting a complex answer. Those are the uh, those are the actors. Now, in terms of what we're seeing. As I said before, in those situations where they're hacktivists or vigilantes or where it's being weaponized in a, as part of a sort of something ancillary to a, a global, a, to, to, to an actual warfare, we're seeing those DDoS attacks. And then for the uh, crime for fun and profit, we're seeing the usual suspects. We're seeing ransomware. Uh, we're seeing enterprise email compromise. Typically, you get there through phishing or social engineering. Uh, and just in case your listeners aren't up on all of this, ransomware has evolved in the last 10 years from what it used to be was um, you would wake up and find your files were encrypted. Your computer was basically a brick, but they were able to get you a ransom note saying we've encrypted your files. And if you want your pictures, your your grandkids back, send us, you know, $100 in Bitcoin, which was not that much back then. Um, so it was just pure encryption and they were going after just regular whoever, anybody that clicked on an email that shouldn't have, as opposed to it being targeted. The ransomware we have now, it's called a sort of a dual attack where they get into your system early on, months, sometimes weeks or sometimes months ahead of time, and they poke around, they get access to whatever they can get access to, they figure out, do you have cyber insurance? What kind of information can they get their hands on? Uh, and what might it be worth to you? Are you a big educa- company or a small attack, company? Exactly. Attack. Yeah, yeah. They're doing, they're essentially putting together a business plan for this attack, right? They're figuring out what can we get? What's it worth to you? And then they launch the actual, uh, you know, and then running, all of this run, would go Running in. the economics on, on whether you're worth attacking or not. Exactly. Yeah. It's like you've gone to them for a loan, but the reverse. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and, and then what happens is, is um, 
they they exfiltrate data, so they copy data and, and essentially steal it, uh, and hopefully that gets detected, but often it doesn't if you don't have logging or monitoring. And then they encrypt your files. And so the the, the, the ransom is, is um, the threat is dual. One, if you want your information not to be shared on the dark web or even the public internet, pay us. And if you want help decrypting your files, pay us. So that's the threat that we see most often now is, is both of those things. But Recently, we've seen a change away from that back to something um, where they're moving away from uh, the the encryption and they're just stealing the uh, data and then threatening to extorting payment by threatening to post it. And we saw that with the move it uh, breaches uh, a few months ago. So, uh, you know, it's a simpler kind of attack, I suppose. So that's um, that's one sort of interesting trend that we've been seeing. And, and uh, these groups yeah. just playing a high volume. This it's, it's a high volume game, right? Cause it's going to pay off. You're going to get looking at your conversions. We're going to attack this many. We're going to get successful here. Like it is a business. Like you, you made yeah. a joke about a business plan. Like let's not kid this kid ourselves. This is very well orchestrated by organizations that this is their mission purpose values. <laughs> well, let me give you, you're absolutely right. And let me give you an example of one of my favorite new attacks. And I saw one of these for the first time and now it's, it's becoming more widely reported. Do we call it a minimally disruptive attack where they sort of um, they, you, they send you a note saying we've we're inside your system. Here's some examples of what we've seen. We didn't encrypt your data, but we could have. We didn't steal it. We think you should pay us a consulting fee as your cybersecurity consultant. <laughs> so the, the old if you can bypass my security system and break into my house, you win the contract. Kind of like this. Again, yeah, exactly. I think we're, th- th- there's a whole Hollywood theme behind everything we're talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty dramatic. Uh, and, but, you know, the feel of that is basically um, what they're and sometimes you'll see them do this, say, you know, pay us a bug bounty because, as you know, a bug bounty is where a company will actually say, if you can break into our systems and show us how you did it, we'll pay you. Well, in this case, it's a bug bounty that nobody offered to pay. Uh, it's more like a nice system you got here. It would be a shame if someone were to destroy it. So uh, that, But that speaks to the, the extent to which this is a business, right? They're trying to pass themselves off as a legitimate business. And the thing that blows my clients' minds when I try to explain this to them, because they've got a, a notion of, of what a hacker is and what cybercrime is. It's not helped by the fact that we always share those images of some guy in a hoodie sitting in the dark. Uh, but they operate like businesses. And so they have branding. They have tech support. Uh, and, and, and they actually like, they're, they're very invested in their brand in the same way a legitimate company is because they need to be recognizable so that people will know, oh yeah, they're serious. We should take them seriously. And also, yes, experience has shown if you pay them, they will make good on the promises that they make because if they don't, no one will pay them. It's a small enough community that, uh, people, um, you know, if, if, a, if a threat actor burns a few a few victims, the word gets around quickly and then no one will deal with them. This is why we saw... Um, so interesting, but it makes perfect yeah. sense. It does. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is why we saw the group that took out the Colonial Pipeline officially disappear right after because they'd screwed up on such an incredible scale that they're like, okay, this brand is ruined now. So they broke up and then reconstituted in different groups and they're building new brands. So... You, wow. The funny thing is, when you negotiate with these people, and I bring in professional rent negotiators to do this, they are surprisingly cordial and helpful, more so than my internet service provider when I call in when I'm having an outage. <laughs> they will, uh, they will like a good a good threat actor. If there's a good threat actor, like a well organized one that knows what they're doing, will help you get your data. Well, will not post your data. Will help you restore your systems. They'll provide a level of technical support. They'll provide proof that they stole the data in the first place when you ask for it. And some of them, I've gotten seen very polite notes saying, "This is how we got in, by the way. Here's what we recommend you do to make sure it doesn't happen again." So, uh, and yeah, is this a situation if you do pay? Yeah. You're on the list like late six months, hit them again, or do they, do they give you a break? <laughs> well, that's it. We, we have been seeing an increase in sort of recidivism. And one of the things we're seeing now, one of the trends we've been seeing in the last few, uh, few months is repeated attacks on the same target. And I gather that the way this is working is they're taking advantage of the fact that some companies, they change their passwords and then they just move on, right? They don't really do the work they to secure it like the a environment. They treat it like a checks and measures, checks and balance exercise versus a, we need to actually take this seriously. And, and yeah, they, they didn't change enough and they didn't change it fast enough so that the threat actors could still get back in with relatively minor effort. Uh, so that's one of the dynamics. The other dynamic and Tell us dropped a report on this in 2022, 2021, which is fascinating, suggesting that um, when you try to haggle with them over the price, you get worse technical support. So you're going to end up recovering <laughs> less of your data in a situation where you shove them down on where you push them down on the price than if you just pay the full amount, which just seems mean spirited. But that's that's what the data seems to be suggesting. 
uh, <laughs> if you negotiate, you will get less. Uh, you will get less from us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because as you said, yeah. you're on a list. They've got. Yeah, you know, I'm guessing they have quotas. They probably have bonuses, yeah. so they can only spend so much time on on you. And that's why very often, I mean, like you'll you'll get the note if you don't pay pretty quickly. The data goes up, and then they just move on. Now, they may try one more time to say, oh, we'll give you another chance. Do you want us to take it down? In which case, pay us. Or they'll just move on. Interesting. I love I love the business case. and It's so much easier to rationalize when you put that filter on it versus just some person with a hoodie on in a dark room just being malicious versus like, this is, there's a boardroom, there's a war room, there's a conversation being had about how you're acting and how we're going to treat you in return. <laughs> this, yeah, absolutely. The stereotypical Al Capone, I'm a businessman kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the mindset. They, these people these people take weekends and evenings off they've got yeah. better hours than i do <laughs> we're doing a negotiation with them we know we won't hear from them on saturday or sunday because they're nine to five guys this is their job yeah <laughs> uh, and then well and then you move into um talk about north korea or china when you're dealing with military uh, this is like well-organized well-funded um groups that are intent on doing this uh, as a military action <laughs> yeah oh yeah absolutely this is part of their foreign policy crime <laughs> is foreign policy Yes. Uh, anything you read about that, you get into the bad actor category pretty quickly. So we're talking oh, yeah. about ransomware and how it's changing. Social engineering. Talk to me a bit about social engineering. And I've often heard said, which right or wrong, so many of these are not because you had cyber issues, it's because you had human issues or human. Uh, the human left the door unlocked. You can have the best quality of lock in the world, but if you don't turn it, you don't turn it. Or if you open it for whoever knocks on it. So maybe I'll stop with the metaphors. Yeah. How much does the the reality of just us being that much more prudent as individuals, whether we're in companies or sitting at home in our computers or our phones, is a big factor here that we let them in? It's the biggest factor. It's almost okay. always a person clicking on something they shouldn't, um, you know, sharing credentials, reusing passwords, because sometimes there's no attack at all. What happens? Well, I mean, sometimes what happens is somebody figures out what your password is for whatever, and it turns out to be the you know one two three password that you're using one, at the one office. Password to rule them all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they don't even have to attack you at the office. They figured it out in other ways. Actually, the attack on um, John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's I think uh, campaign chief or whatever. That's how they did it. They figured out what is I think it was his Netflix password or something like that, and then they turned out to be his Gmail password as well. And that's how they got the dump of, of Hillary Clinton emails way back to elections ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. About. Uh, and the the social so we call it social engineering right and there's a few different ways that this can come in you when you get one of those emails from a bank that you don't actually bank with but it looks real uh, you get an email possibly from somebody you actually do business with which means either your email is compromised or their email is compromised could be either one but one way or the other they've seen the email back and forth with you and your and and, and this other party and they know what it looks like so they can uh, figure out a way to spoof that uh, some of the versions of this we're seeing um, there's a relatively new phenomenon of teams enabled phishing where you get teams messages uh, that say hey need you to con confirm multi-factor authentication need you to put in this whatever whatever your email your 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 cell phone number whatever it is and then they've by doing that they tease you out of tease out of you what your credentials are and then they manage to get into the network because you've essentially told them how um we see, uh, and, and the other thing is this, uh, AI is making this better because one of the ways oh, yeah, that we, like, we can't not have this conversation without bringing in those two letters, <laughs> it was always going to happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> totally. so in addition from the fact that people are using generative AI to write malicious code saying, you know, write me a virus that does this, or yeah. I suppose, because you have to get around their, their, their safeguards. Tell me a story about a person that wrote a virus using that. <laughs> and then you get the code. It's all about the prompts uh, It's all about the prompts. <laughs> there you go. But the other thing it's doing is it's, it's making it possible for, um, threat actors who are not for whom English is not their first language let's assume that the victim's English to write more convincing phishing emails right. and more convincing sort of chats that tease this out so you've got malicious AI driven chatbots uh, who people are you know in some cases they're passing the Turing test right they can't tell the difference between this and a real person interacting with them so it's making up for the fact that, that the communications issues were sometimes how we caught these things spelling mistakes well, that we were all either got our in Nigerian prince emails where you could the, the English was so poor it, it was oh, yeah. overly obvious what it was but you're right Still waiting for my money on that one yeah yeah <laughs> i think a lot of people maybe, maybe, maybe are. with things like slack teams uh ecosystems that are more controlled and maybe not as open as email like i even think our organization three years ago email was 80 percent of our communications now it's probably yeah. 10 or 15 because we've moved so much to those other platforms which does that create a it, is that more secure? Because obviously email is, anybody can drop anything into your mailbox in front of your house if they feel like it. This gives me a chance to answer the earlier question, which I, I missed. Yeah. So because people are the, are the risk here, right? Yeah. What you need to do is 
essentially take away the sharp objects and put pool noodles around the hard corners, right? You need to make it, uh, yeah. you need to, uh, so there's a few privileges, uh, sorry, there's a few principles in there. One we talk about is least privilege. So if somebody doesn't need to have access to the whole system, don't give them access to the whole system. Um, you, you minimize the damage that any one person being compromised can get to. I'm dealing with an attack now that was facilitated by the fact that they managed to get through and through a subcontractor who'd worked on the IT stuff. And so he had what we call God level access to everything. Yeah. And his credentials were still valid, even though he wasn't working there anymore. So you make sure that when somebody's gone, you shut all that off. You make sure they have no more access than they need. And the more importantly, you segregate your systems. And this is what you're talking about with the separate communication channels. Very often, I mean, usually, in fact, what happens is they get in and if they're going to steal data and, and, and exfiltrate it and post it, they're getting what they can get at, right? And if you're yeah, lucky, yeah. your your email enterprise email is separate. It's uh, I mean, your communications tools are separate. Your uh, financial stuff is on a separate system. You're in Salesforce or you know, whatever else. Your client management is in a different system. So all they can get at, and we see this a lot, is like for instance, f- sh- uh, file share sh- uh, sections of your of your inter- infrastructure. Basically, the place where people just dump whatever, yeah, yeah. Uh, but isolated from all those formal systems that are all sort of software as a service isolated stuff so yeah the more you segregate all that out the better position you're in because when they get in there what they can get actually get access to is minimal so building some well and in it feels like so many of our systems are kind of going almost that way inherently which can be a challenge yeah. like how many apps do i have to communicate with my team and where am i am i on slack am i on asana am i on monday like pick the thing yeah but in a way that is actually creating a little bit of insulation against one access to to everything as long as you're not using the same password for all of them. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. Too, too sure. yes. Yeah, I mean, the and, and I'll get into a little bit of industry um, uh, baffle gab here, but the, the expression, two cliches you hear all the time. One of them is, it's not if, it's when. So you will, yeah. be, you will be hit by an attack. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. And the other <laughs> thing is we've moved away from prevention to resilience. So on the assumption uh, that somebody's okay. going to be able to get in, there's a, uh, a really great... Um, uh, scholar working at RMC in Queens. His name is Christian Luprecht, and he's got a. Uh, he describes what's the, the the sort of the castle model of cyber secure cybersecurity, where all you're focused on is keeping them out of the castle. Well, what if they get in anyway? Are you monitoring what's going on inside the castle so that you can see when somebody is breaking into a, a chamber and stealing the crown the crown jewels? Are you uh, monitoring what's happening inside your system so that if, you know, when, not if, somebody gets in, you detect strange patterns? Like, for instance, if you set things up properly, you segregate all your stuff so there's minimal access to, you know, they can only get at certain things, and you also have the monitoring in place so that you can see a large volume of data seems to be moving through the firewall, or... There's a strange activity happening over here. Something seems to be copying. Something, something, something zip, zip. You know, somebody's creating zip files. Which that AI sort of is also an incredible tool to monitor those things because it can identify. Whoa, hey, something's going on. When I get a call from Visa, hey, you made a purchase. Somebody wasn't watching that. A computer picked up on the fact that my purchase yeah. patterns changed. Right. Yeah. Now it's not foolproof. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know how many of your your listeners have had this experience. I had my uh, debit card shut down because they said there was a strange transaction, and I went to the bank to get it reactivated, and they. They weren't sure because no human had made this decision, but the best they could figure is the transaction that triggered it was that I spent a couple hundred bucks at a grocery store 50 meters from the bank. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. And that's yeah, what the yeah. AI thought was weird. So, um, yeah. Well, that is the problem so, with those. Like, we don't know what it's like, how it arrived at its conclusion, which is another yeah. conversation for another day. Oh, yeah. The black box issue is, is going to yeah. be a problem with all these things. And you're going to have a lot of unhappy customers while we sort out the, uh, you know, sort out the bugs on these things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, prevention versus resilience. It made me think about, I'm not sure where, but examples of towns or cities that were built almost maze-like. So the pirates or the raiders could, would get lost. So yeah. once they got in the city, they couldn't find their way out <laughs> until the locals could round them up and deal with them versus the castle mentality of as long as we keep them outside the wall, they, yeah. they don't make it inside the keep or we're okay. But, but they're probably going to get in like your yeah. resilience versus prevention. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And from there, the yeah. question is how quickly can we get back online? And if we have, for instance, stored our backups in the same places we stored everything else, they're encrypted too. Mm-hmm. So it's these little things that are process driven more than, you know, because, because often the, the response to these things, the temptation is to take an IT approach, which is to say, to tech the tech, throw more tech at it. Yeah, yeah. The problem that you actually have is you don't have processes in place that make sense. Uh, you're not thinking like a cybersecurity person. Cybersecurity and IT are different disciplines. Cybersecurity is about this planning pro, this planning and process uh, as much as it is the tools, because it's a mindset of how do I minimize and how do I recover quickly. 
I love that you touched on that. Small to medium size, and I'm well, maybe well, let's not let's not let's not remove uh, enterprise off this. The conversation yeah. of cyber versus IT, and who owns this, and are we making that switch from in the past? Easy, oh, we'll get IT on it. We'll put we'll put in we'll put in more things. We'll put in more hardware. But so much yeah. of our information isn't hardware based anymore. It's on the cloud. It's someone else's hardware somewhere else that we trust is dealing with it. Yeah. Do you see a lot of organizations, and is this maybe a gap as you come down into medium to smaller organizations where oh, I've got IT, but but I don't really have or my IT isn't cyber enabled or they're not, they're not educated in that way. Is that, is that gap a real thing? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, the small ones I've dealt with, the most egregious ones are the ones where like, we have all our stuff on, on servers in our office. We have a guy that comes in, who's my brother-in-law once every couple of weeks to change the backup tapes or whatever they have in place, depending on how old <laughs> the system it is. Like I had one where they got a ransomware note and the IT guy said, ah, it's probably fake. Cause I don't see any, uh, you know, it doesn't, I, I don't see any evidence of this. So I, I, I'm sure that this is fake. And then it, we, the, I think a week later, they got a call from the police to say, did did you know your data's on the dark web? Oh, wow. Ooh, yeah. Ouch. So, I mean, and, and, and this some, is not some, a slag some, on... Somebody gets an unco- in an uncomfortable meeting right there pretty quick. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, very often with these things, I'm dealing with the CISO, if there is a CISO, and I, um, they may not yeah. be there by the time the process is over. But, I mean, to be fair to the IT people, that's not what they train for. That's not their discipline. It's the difference yeah, between, yeah. I mean, this is a very crude comparison and maybe a provocative one, but there's a difference between police and soldiers, right? Yeah. I mean, there's an intentional divide in these things. It's just a different discipline, and this is why. I mean, for, so for the smaller ones, the answer is is often you do outsource more of this, right? You put yourself in the hands of a provider that will do the continue the store the, the online storage and the continuous monitoring and the you know whatever else you can afford to pay for. Uh, and there's no end of money that you can spend on this, uh, but yeah. it's a really difficult decision to, to to you know for smaller companies because there's a proportionality issue, right? You could spend your whole budget on this stuff, but the, obviously you can't do that. So how much is enough? How much is reasonable? How much would be in the eyes of a court appropriate for the size of the business and the sensitivity of the information? I remember I was speaking at a conference and a guy said, "I've got this much extra money. Do I hire another IT guy or do I get cyber insurance?" And I said, "Well, as a lawyer, I have to tell you to do both. I don't know where you're going to find the money." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the money's on yours. Is there a yeah. formula? Is there an armchair? Is there a finger in the wind kind of thing around how much should be invested in this? Is it, you know, I get this, I work in marketing. How much How much of our revenue should we allot to marketing? I'm like, well, are you growing? Are you stable? Or like, well, are you building a brand? Are you entering a new yeah. market? Like, it, it's, a, it's a how long's a piece of string, aka depends question. Is, yeah. there, is there something that shows up from a, you made the comment about in court, we've, to, now I have to show and defend myself that I invested in this and it still got me versus I was completely completely blind and ignorant and didn't invest anything, <laughs> yeah. which I'm assuming shows up as well, right? Yes. So, well, to, well, here's, so it's interesting because we don't have a lot of these cases that have gone through the court system far enough for us to know exactly uh, okay. how they're going to be treated. And part that's because something like 90 or 95%, depending on where you are the country, of civil lawsuits settle in conf- on confidential terms we never hear about. So most lawsuits never end up in a decision we get to read. Uh, but there is an example, for instance, of the class action settlement in the Home Depot case in Ontario, and this is, I think, seven years ago now, and it's a nice example of how the courts are, are starting to think about these things, and the good news for companies is the courts are very pragmatic about this. In that case, the uh, the, the Home Depot settled, and the, the way the settlement was structured was a, 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 part, a credit monitoring for all the victims, uh, people whose data was impacted, a, a fund created so that people who can prove they suffered an actual loss out of this, like this, somebody okay. got into their bank account, that sort of a thing, they can make a claim and get money out of that, and then some money for the lawyers um the lawyers did not get a lot of money out of this and the judge okay, said th- thank I would you for have, clarifying because my head went somewhere else <laughs> <laughs> well look my, my law school professor said uh, a class action is where the class gets uh, uh the, the, the lawyers get a million dollars and each class member gets a new toaster okay. uh but uh, this was not one of those cases okay uh, and the judge said i would have been prepared to uh certify this settlement on the basis that there was no uh, there was nothing because essentially it doesn't look like the company did anything wrong yes they were compromised but they had reasonable measures in place and they reacted in exactly the way you would want them to see them react they were responsible they took care of their customers and all that good stuff right it's 
very much the way we expect any company uh, to to react when you know when something goes wrong. They 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 communicate uh, effectively they're and clearly. Right, they're honest. They yeah, exactly. It. All, all, and, all the things we hope for good human behavior. <laughs> yeah, and they take care. Of, they're big good corporate citizens. Absolutely, they take care of their victims. So um, that's the way the courts seem to be approaching this. So the good news is I can't tell you what the ratio is because it depends very much on what are you sitting on, how sensitive is it. How profitable is it, right? Like, if you don't have any money, you can't spend any money. And there are some industries where the risk is very high relative to the profitability of the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of these things, I mean, it's a complicated it's a complicated picture. But I think that it would be fair to say that, like, the court's going to look at it on a case-by-case basis, but they're going to understand that you have to be reasonable about this. Uh, you, so, you know, and, and I think that there's a proportionality built into that uh, that assessment when the courts do it. And candidly, we're not going to see a lot of those smaller or mid-sized ones that going all the way through the courts, because that's exactly the kind of case that either it's not worth suing over, or it's small claims, or it gets resolved early because there's just not a lot of money in it. So it's going to, you know, that, that it's a tricky answer and an unsatisfying one. But yeah, that's that's the way I'm looking uh, I appreciate at it. The, I appreciate the reality of it. We've yeah. talked a little bit at the corporate level, uh, going up a little bit higher level, inf- infrastructure. I think I read, yeah. uh, I think a couple of years ago, I read, this is how they tell me the world ends, which was quite a dramatic picture on, and to your point, bad actors at a state level attacking infrastructure, whether it's our nuclear facilities, our power grid, our hospitals, like pick the, you know, it's a little bit what you talked about even the war in Ukraine where, you know, yeah. what's the first, you know, you know, attack is imminent when they start to destabilize your communication network, when they start to de- like blow up your bridges, blow up your train tracks, the, they blow up your inability, or they de- try to destroy your inability to run and function. You think about that at a cyber level, how real is that? I guess, is it, it's fear mongering, but it doesn't sound like it's misplaced <laughs> to be candid. <laughs> No, uh, I, uh, a Quebec um, hydroelectric uh, company was attacked for political reasons, again, because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, the, the Russians were unhappy about it. Uh, we're seeing those kinds of attacks all the time. This is why, uh, and we saw with the colonial pipelines, and that was an interesting case where the hackers, um, they sort of, it's the dog that caught the car. Uh, they were hoping just to <laughs> shut down the business side of the operations, but because of the way the systems were linked and integrated, Colonial had to shut down the flow of gas as well. So now they've created a crisis by accident. They overshot. The, the dog that caught the car. That's a great Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So this is why, I mean, the U.S. response to that was uh, critical infrastructure uh, legislation, uh, imposing cybersecurity obligations on companies that are working in that critical uh, infrastructure space. And we are about to get that here in Canada. Right now, working its way through Parliament are two very important bills for cyber and privacy. One is a replacement for the federal law that controls the commercial collection of data. So companies collecting customer data, that sort of a thing. Alberta has a separate law. But this federal one is the one that applies everywhere except provinces that have a law that's equivalent. Um, Now, Alberta is probably going to have to review its law and, 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 and pass a newer, tougher one, because the way that it's looked at is if it's not equivalent to the federal law... It's not good enough, and so then the federal it, law will it apply. Can be, it can be, it can be more, but it can't be less. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. So we're probably going to see uh, sort of a, 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 a tightening up of security uh, of, of uh, obligations on uh, in Alberta, Quebec, BC, because those are the uh, provinces that don't that have their own laws, and I'm sure don't want to go back to being under the federal law. So that's going to impose a bunch more uh, obligations. It's going to impose fines when people don't do what they're supposed to do. And as part of that law, there's a sort of a, a, a fairly small part of it that just says you're supposed to put measures in place to protect the data. The other law that is going through is called C-26, and this is um, protects what are described in the law as vital systems, but functionally this is, um, uh, this is critical infrastructure, and so it covers telecommunications, nuclear systems, banking, transportation, but more important for Alberta, interprovincial or international pipelines and power systems. So anyone in that vertical, no matter how big or small the company, is probably going to be subject to this law. And the law says you're going to have to make sure you're going to have to show us that you've got systems and plans and processes in place to defend against an attack and again to be resilient so that we're comfortable that the the power isn't going to go down in the winter. Oil isn't going to be cut off and gas aren't going to be cut off in the winter in Alberta or the rest of the country because you weren't ready for this. And there are big fines and, and, uh, and there's possible jail time for people that don't comply with this. Oh, interesting. There's, so there's, there's teeth. Mm-hmm. There's teeth. There's teeth. Now, some people I'm sure will say it's not enough, but it's a start because at the moment there's nothing like that. Fair enough. Are we, if you think of Canada just as a very, very broad 
are we ahead? Are we behind? Are we back on our heels when it comes to the reality of, uh, you know, China, North Korea, and Russia? If you want to think of things, there's three bad actors that I want to hang out yeah. at, a par- at a party with. Are we, are we, I've had it said to me by other individuals in the show, like, we're getting, we will get penalized for our lack of preparation if we're not careful. Mm-hmm. We're catching up. Okay. Uh, we're catching up certainly in terms of our privacy laws and our privacy regime. We're going to have something now that puts us more close, uh, closer to what you have in Europe the, with the GDPR law and, with, and what you have in California, which was the first sort of uh, fair, very rigorous law in the U.S. Quebec has Law 25, which is also very rigorous. So we're, getting, we're catching up on that front. Now, in terms of cybersecurity preparedness, like the technical level, that sort of a thing, um, we're still not where we need to be, but I don't think anybody is. Okay. I mean, the U.S. U.S. government is still not investing enough in its own security, right? Like they're dealing with, like, you don't want to know how old the computers and systems are that manage the missiles uh, in the States or the nuclear power plants. Uh, so I don't think that any Western government has invested enough in protecting itself. We're getting better at arming our organizations and, and, and helping them prepare better. We, in the last 10 years, we've spun up the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity. Uh, so that's, you know, and, and they got some very good uh, advice and tools for individuals, small and medium enterprises that don't have a ton, uh, that can't invest in an army of cybersecurity professionals. So that's getting out there. It needs more funding. There needs to be more of it. And we need a, a more mature private sector. And that takes time. Like in the States, you have a generation already of people that were in the military doing cyber and then the police, the FBI and the NSA uh, and work their way into the private sector. And so now when I deal with oh, a vendor, okay. a cybersecurity vendor in the states i'm probably talking to an ex cia or fbi person or military uh we don't really have that here yet we're working on it because what's happened is they've there's been a, a significant increase in in what we're doing militarily with cybersecurity. we have offensive capability that we didn't have years ago uh and so there will start you will start to see the same thing right we'll start to see you see a private sector that's populated by ex rcmp ex military and bring that sort of uh, cutting edge ex expertise but it takes time and there's a huge huge um there's a huge skills gap in this country and just about everywhere else we can't hire enough people yeah, uh, in this talent, space for the I, demand I, hear that. And, well, I don't think i have anyone on the show in any topic or any category or any vertical that doesn't have a skills gap somewhere along the absolutely way. but this one is worse than, uh, than than just about any sector and 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 more consequential i would say but yeah you're right this is this is part of a well, larger on, problem on, on top of a very deep tech debt technology debt that you talked yeah. about about our our you know the weapon systems and some of these things that were bleeding edge in 1977 or 1984, <laughs> right? <laughs> Commodore 64, when I had my VIC-20, I think, back in, back, back in the day. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, quantum, quantum security, quantum encryption. You know, there's AI, yeah. and then we got to throw the word quantum on top of it. And it's a, it's a conversation I'm just starting to have and something I, I know I don't know a lot about, but it gets real scary really fast when I get into the, hey, how mm-hmm. soon until quantum just blows up all the things that we called safe before? <laughs> maybe yeah, a, maybe yeah. a few years, but it's still coming from what I've been told. Yeah. So the big threat, obviously, is it, it, it's, it's going to put an end to encryption. Nothing will be able to, nothing will be uncrackable is the worry. Yeah. I have yet to see two people give the same answer as to when <laughs> it's going to be and how bad it's going to be. So right now for me, and I'm not, not, not slagging the industry, like there's a lot of really, and we're a leading edge in this, right? Like Canada is, we've got a lot of good people working on this uh, and they're, they're, they're getting good funding. Uh, and then cyber is the same. Like we're, we're with the private sector in terms of developing tools, very good in Canada, not so good at uh, going to market with all this stuff. So um, like they're legitimate people doing real work but for me the hype around that feels like the hype around crypto at the beginning of crypto yeah, okay. now that i give less credence and legitimacy to but it what's the same about it is how do i make sense of it and who do i not who do i trust but who you know who, who where do i think this is actually going to go and so i'm not i'm I, i'm as in the dark as anybody else unfortunately about that and it won't comfort you to know that the people that i talk to on the technical side are in the dark as well Oh, anything that I get when I've tried it, it's like, oh yeah, it's coming, but ooh, five to 10 years. I'm like, basically five, ten, saying 10 years is saying, I don't know, basically. Yes. 
Yeah, it gets it gets scary, but there's enough reality of what we're dealing with now. Just like you said, the role that AI is playing, let alone thinking about what quantum could or might do five or eight or ten years from now, or or who or who, who knows when. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got a lot of stairs to fall down before we get to that one. <laughs> Fair to say, that's, that's a great expression. I might, uh, I'm going to borrow that one from you somewhere along the way today. Please, thank you. <laughs> I love it. So, thinking about this on a broad sense, with what you're seeing, like I guess. Just broad sweeping advice. It's a weird question to ask at the end of so many topics that we've we've covered today from state actors and military bunkers in North Korea that are looking to siphon your money to fund their rocket program. Like just the every one of these is a movie plot in its own right. And I think it probably has been, like you said earlier. <laughs> um, but if I'm listening at this, my audience is business people, mid to senior level managers, everyone CEO to director level, all down to startups that were running so fast trying to build their next platform that their tech debt and their cybersecurity might be a risk for them uh, when they've just trying to materialize what they do with this first $5 million of funding they got. Any broad kind of commentary you want to throw over, over top of all this? <laughs> Brett, you've got the microphone and the chair at this moment. <laughs> if I say hide under the bed, you'll make that the soundbite, so I won't say that. But here's, as a general rule for executives, for officers and directors who, who ultimately own the risk on this, here's my message you do own the risk on this. This isn't an IT problem, and you can't just point to your IT department and blame them if something goes wrong. This is something that is, it's 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 a business risk, and it needs to be treated that way. Every board member, every, and I, even with the small companies, every, like if you're, if you're a one-person company, then you're the person that needs to know about this stuff, and you need to be on top of it. Nobody expects you to understand it all, but you need to be at least aware of what's going on and you need to you know to, you need to spend the money and spend the time getting get, getting things uh, lined up so the overall message is own this risk and treat it seriously this isn't just an annoyance uh, and it's not something that can be dealt with with just technical solutions it has to start at the top you have to model the behavior with everyone you work with because again it's employees i i can't tell you how many times i've dealt with um an attack where the person who was the victim of the phishing initially and let it in is an executive it's a top level person who skipped the training yeah and was in a hurry right they're answering stuff on their phone in a hurry um and so they're the they're, they're the ones they're the gateway they're the problem so yeah, that yeah. that's the overall message is take this seriously and get into it and don't let it scare you off. I mean, there's people like me that became lawyers because they couldn't deal like they had a mental block around math. Don't let this be that for you. You need to understand <laughs> I this. That. I and there's ways to get into this that, are, that aren't scary. And it's fascinating, frankly. I mean, much as it's terrifying because it's your business, this is a really interesting area in terms of tech and global politics, all of that stuff. So you can get into it. You, you'll get interested in this fast if you give yourself a chance. That's good. Yeah. And ignorance is not a defense. I'm here as my underpinning of everything. Like you can't. Absolutely. There's, absolutely. There, there's where it's, it's come too far and it's too much of a reality in terms of how uh, impact our day-to-day life as individuals, as citizens, but as leaders of organizations, like you said, it's your responsibility. You can't fluff it off and say, oh, my IT didn't. That doesn't matter when you're sitting in front of whoever defending the privacy breach or whatever happened in your organization. So let's maybe not, not, not get there or be damn well prepared when we do. <laughs> Back to the not, not if it, it, it's when I used to ride motorcycle and there was two types of riders, ones that have crashed and one that are going to crash. It reminds me of, it's a rem, <laughs> it reminds me of this scenario. <laughs> it, it's a good analogy. It yeah. didn't stop people from riding. Maybe it did stop people, but the people who rode go, yeah, no, that's why I'm going to wear the gear. I'm going to put on the, the elbow pads and the boots and all this stuff. Maybe a, maybe a weak metaphor, but it, it seemed to hold up for me. Um, no, nope, it works. <laughs> uh, Brett, people want to get a hold of you. They want to learn. You know, is there a, is there a place? Do you do you put out content? Do you? I appreciate your thought leadership on this, and it sounds like you definitely do a deep dive. Is there anywhere someone can can read your stuff or watch your or listen to you? Absolutely. So I am very Googleable. Look me up on the nice. firm website. It's just I, I'm two clicks away. I'm easy to find. I'm on LinkedIn and I post uh, on there very regularly. I am for moral reasons not on Twitter anymore, but I'm on Threads. I'm on Blue Sky, all under my name, so you can find me easily. And hopefully. Hopefully this comes through. I love talking about this stuff. So if you've got a question, you want to know about resources, uh, feel free to reach out. My email is on the uh, uh, is on the firm website. It's brent.arnold at gallingwlg.com. But again, just Google me and you'll find me. Uh, this is the fun part of my job. So uh, yeah, there's content out there. There's lots of it. And uh, always happy to talk. Brent, really appreciate your time. Appreciate your insights. And uh, yeah, you, you and I might be, might be chatting again. <laughs> Fantastic. This was fun. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time.